Welcome back to the Salty Talks podcast. I'm your host, Corinne Newfie, the Aquaculture Communications Specialist with the Aquaculture Research Institute. And today I wanted to talk about the importance of animal health and fish vaccines. So I've brought on Debbie Bouchard, the director of the Aquaculture Research Institute, and Sarah Turner, a current PhD candidate, to help me do this. Um, so will the both of you uh, briefly introduce yourself and talk more uh, about your background? So I'll go first. Um, I am an aquatic animal health specialist. Is that going to wreck it? <laughs> no, I can't talk about uh, it. I'm an aquatic animal health specialist, and I've worked with both uh, the private sector and the industry um, uh, with Cooperative Extension now um, and the University of Maine. I'm uh, Sarah Turner, and I've worked as an aquatic animal health research specialist about 15 years with the University of Maine. All right. Like humans and terrestrial animals, viruses, bacteria, and parasites can cause adverse health effects and spread through populations, especially when organisms are within close proximity to each other. So I wanted to start off talking about why it's important that we put time and effort into vaccine research in general for farmed animals. Well, vaccines are actually very efficient at um, controlling or mitigating disease and all animals in an agricultural setting or even in, in, in wildlife, you know, are susceptible to disease based on the environment that they're in. Um, vaccine research has really improved the efficiency and productivity of aquaculture worldwide. Right now, if you look at um, the number one impediment for aquaculture production, it actually is disease. It accounts for 40% loss of production, and that's estimated at 102 billion in losses annually. I don't think this is any different than any other agricultural uh, area where you're producing animals, um, but it but it is but vaccines have been very efficacious in, in, in helping mitigate that and why we continue working on improving them. Um, and these diseases that you're talking about spreading, is this only in aquaculture? Or do these diseases also exist in wild fish populations? So one of the things I always say is um, diseases don't spontaneously generate <laughs> um, and they have to originate from somewhere. And that said, in an act, in an agriculture, aquaculture environment where you have, you tend to be raising things in high density, um, they become sort of sentinel to what's out there with disease. Um, and it's easier to spread it where animals, in this case, fish, congregate. Um, and, then, and then the environmental conditions and impact you know, will impact the, the way that disease spreads in that population, making them sort of more susceptible to spreading disease. Are there any other outside factors that contribute to disease spread? Um, I guess in particular, I'm thinking about warming temperatures or other external factors. I think climate change will play a role in um, having disease maybe become more prevalent on in, in two ways. One is going to be a stressor to the animal, and when animals are stressed, they're more, their immune response may be lowered and they're more susceptible to disease, but also the environment may change the actual organism that's causing the disease, the pathogen, to be more virulent in a certain environmental condition. So as temperatures are warming, like even in Maine, we're seeing organisms come in 
um, microbial organisms that we haven't seen before. So you touched on the economic problem of disease spread and production and crop loss. So it sounds like vaccines have an added economic benefit to aquaculture as well. Um, so besides the economic benefit um, and increased food production, what are some other benefits of having vaccines in aquaculture? The use of vaccines in aquaculture has greatly reduced dependency on antibiotics. But you remember when we say antibiotics, that's for bacterial pathogens, mm -hmm. you know, um, and so there's always a concern with antibiotics that we're developing resistant organisms out there um, that would then transfer over to, to humans. Um, so just for that reason, developing vaccines is, is pretty important. I would maybe just also add that um, it's more, it's better for animal welfare and for economics to prevent a disease outbreak before it happens than to try and treat one. Yeah, that makes sense. You're trying to like start proactively instead yeah. of coming at it from the defense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and are vaccines in general lower cost to manufacture than antibiotics or does it sort of depend on the... I don't think so. Um, and one of the things I want to make sure that we state is that in aquaculture, they have relatively few antibiotics that are actually approved. Mm -hmm. So the relative usefulness of antibiotics, even when employed in aquaculture, is limited. So vaccines can be very expensive, um, and that's part of why we're doing our research, which is we're going to talk about a little bit later on our, our novel adjuvants. Um, so no, the vaccines can be very expensive. And for the most part, um, you know, fish are actually vaccinated one fish at a time. Mm -hmm. And so not only is the cost of the vaccine there, but also the labor in vaccinating those animals. Have been around since the 1940s. Is that right? Yes. Um, are they used in a bunch of different fish species or does it depend on the fish species if they can be vaccinated or not? Um. There's currently approved vaccines for a number of different aquaculture fish species. <laughs> no, so um, honestly, no. Vaccines are something in aquaculture that are constantly being developed. Mm -hmm. And most fish species that we culture have some type of vaccine that's produced for them, whether it be immersion, injection, you know, and, and the newer developing ones are in feed. But for vaccinating fish, you're always going to, because of the expense of vaccinating, you're going to target the higher value fish species. So we tend to have a lot more vaccines developed for salmon, mm -hmm. for the salmonids, because they're your higher value fish, than we might do for tilapia or catfish. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, you mentioned immersion and injection vaccines. Uh, what's the difference between the two? And are there any other types of vaccines? Yeah, so immersion is where you um, dip the fish or immerse it in the vaccine. Um, yeah, uh, injection obviously is just as it sounds. Um, you're injecting the fish with the vaccine just like you would with terrestrial animals or you humans. Um, and then there's also oral uh, feed vaccines um, where you can dose the fish um, in the feed. 
all of those are also subject to the way that the pathogen would actually infect the fish. Mm. So while it would be great to have efficacious, effective oral vaccines, because that's the simplest way, you just feed it, um, you're, you're really targeting only certain type of pathogens that you can go with an in-feed vaccine. Mm. Right now, predominantly the most effective vaccines for finfish are injected vaccines. Down to the actual vaccine part of it, you mentioned um, an adjuvant in vaccines. So vaccines, to my knowledge, are composed of an antigen and an adjuvant that exposes the immune system to a pathogen, um, which creates a, a memory for the immune system later on to fight off a disease. Um, what is the purpose of the antigen and the uh, adjuvant, and do you need to have both of them? And are they working together? If you could just explain. Yes. So the antigen is uh, either the whole pathogen or a part of it that the immune system recognizes. And on its own, it creates a, a weak immune response. So it needs the adjuvant, which is like an, a delivery agent, to, de to deliver the antigen to the immune cells to create an effective immune response and memory to that pathogen. Uh, so both parts are, are necessary for an effective vaccine. How long does it take for an immune response to develop after the vaccine is administered? Or is that dependent on the it, type of vaccine? Yeah, it's dependent on the dose and the, the pathogen and the, the vaccine. I think also the fish species as well. Pretty much the fish species, the warmer the, the if, if it's a fish species, the, the warmer the temperature that the fish are raised in, the quicker their response is going to be, the colder, the slower. Um, in, in, in our, when we're doing vaccination, we call it degree days. And um, the average sort of what we know in our what, what we what's in the literature out there and what we've always worked in is that you want 600 degree days so if you have a fish at that's being raised at 12 degrees that's about 60 days before you know that okay i've probably reached our peak um, immune response and if you have a fish obviously growing at 20 degrees um, it's going to be a lot shorter time than that. These are all things that have been worked out through research over years. And I think it's probably important to add that we're just to remember that we're trying to protect the fish over the course of its lifetime. And for like Atlantic salmon, that would be about two years. So it's it's not quite the same as terrestrial animals or humans. So this isn't like when we go get our annual flu shot every yeah. year, this is like a one and done injection? Uh, well, hopefully, sometimes there's boosters required depending on the pathogen. Very yeah. true. Yeah. yeah. Um, and are the vaccines live or inactive? Yeah, so the most common uh, antigen used in aquaculture is an inactivated um, antigen or what's also called the Bactrin. And that's used primarily because it's the most cost effective and it's the most safe. So the, the parts of the pathogen used um, for the antigen are not active um, pathogen. There's rare cases in uh, finfish where you have what's called an attenuated antigen or pathogen where 
they've done something in the laboratory that has changed it so it won't produce the disease anymore, but your the, the fish's response to it is a strong immune response. That one's like, now we're getting way into the weeds of <laughs> no, science. That's good. I like yeah. the weeds of science. Okay. Um, great. I think we should move into the nanocellulose research now. And um, Sarah, you are doing your PhD on this, correct? Yeah. So this was a grant that uh, I actually started writing for class credit and then once it was finished, um, reached out, Debbie and I reached out to the engineering department here at the University of Maine um, for some collaboration on, <laughs> and uh, we submitted it. It's a USDA AFRI foundational grant, um, and it was uh, awarded. So um, it's a three-year project. Um, we are currently about a year and a half in. And so your project is looking at um, new things to use as adjuvants in vaccines. Yeah. And you're using nanocellulose, right? Yeah. So the current adjuvant used in commercial aquaculture vaccines is uh, oil-based. And um, it works really well in terrestrial animals, but fish are a little bit different. And when you put it into fish, it can create a strong inflammatory response which can result in some negative consequences such as um, pigmentation, um, uh, adhesions, some uh, negative growth consequences. And so, and it's very expensive. So nanocellulose is a, a biocompatible, biodegradable, um, more economically uh, effective um, possibility for an adjuvant for fish vaccines. The vaccine that you are looking at is specifically for what type of uh, pathogen or disease? So we chose a bacterial pathogen called Vibrio angularum, and that causes a disease called vibriosis, um, which can result in uh, skin lesions and um, uh, high mortality in, in aquaculture facilities. We chose that bacteria because it's really well studied and characterized. So it helps to take out a variable um, uh, in our experiments because we already know how it's going to behave and um, the impact it will have. Part of the, when you're evaluating new vaccine and new vaccine formulations, it's always good to go with what we know is out there and what is working before you like target the hardest pathogen in the world. And, mm -hmm. you know, so like Sarah was saying, you knock out a variable. So we've taken Vibrio angularum, uh, causes vibriosis globally in many, many different kinds of species, uh, finfish species. So it was a good target organism to try the new adjuvant uh, formulation with because we can compare it to a, an already commercially available vaccine that's working efficiently. It's a win-win if we even have this vaccine work just as well because the cost of production is going to be so less. So we're working on two fronts there. We're making it, um, one, we're working not only with a biocompatible, bio, bio, biodegradable substance, um, which is an oil in, an oil-based adjuvant. Um, and I lost my flow of thought there. What was I gonna say after that? Um, <laughs> uh, but then we're reducing the cost. 
So, so again, what, one of the reasons why we chose that particular antigen or pathogen is that it is a global concern and there are efficacious vaccines and we really need to compare our new formulations against something known. So then would the idea be that you could then use this to treat other diseases in salmonids like salmon anemia and other things if this works out? So what we're testing again, as Sarah was saying, is the effect of our novel nanocellulose as either a depot or an adjuvant. Um, and if it's effective with an unknown pathogen, then yes, we can definitely apply it to other new and emerging pathogens. That's one thing that's never going to disappear in any type of uh, living system of animals is new and emerging pathogens will always surface. And I, th I think I would just add that, um, you know, we chose a bacterial pathogen to, to do this research with, but it could very easily translate to using a viral um, antigen or, you know, other potential bacterial antigens. So why did you pick nanocellulose as your adjuvant like you've said it's um uh biodegradable and environmentally friendly but um i'm sure there's other particles that are also biodegradable and environmentally friendly as yes. well so nanocellulose is produced from uh cellulose which it, it's one of it actually is the most predominant um biopolymer on earth so uh, we're sourcing it here from trees. Um, we chose it because it's readily available to us here at the University of Maine, and it has a lot of great potential. So it has a lot of great potential yeah. um, to, to work as an adjuvant and deliver yeah. the, the, the antigen. antigen. Yeah, we actually uh, became more aware of it by uh, Debbie and I took a tour of the engineering facility and they were showing it to us and Debbie was the one that said hey this looks like something that could serve as an adjuvant um, cool. yeah it's the other thing about it too is you know it is basically the, the predominant nanocellulose does come from wood pulp Maine is a, a forestry state mm -hmm. and so it was just serendipitous that we actually saw this but yet um, you know the way that it's again by it's renewable it's an it's a renewable source um for for for, for producing this product as well and nanocellulose uh is used in many applications already and that's what we learned i mean it's used for drug delivery for cosmetics um, and the mm -hmm. idea of it be because it's so inert um and uh i guess what you would call tunable as well tunable meaning like you can modify the characteristics of it to yeah deliver. yeah so there's a lot of different ways that you can modify it the first being in production depending on how you produce it you can get a lot of different versions that have different structural properties different chemical properties um, so you can see nanocellulose being used as you know a film or a solid or a gel um, and then uh, on top of uh, different ways to produce it, you can also modify it chemically by adding different um, molecules to it. Um, it's very easily manipulated, I guess is how to put it. 
Um, so what does this vaccine look like when it's going into the fish? Like we go to the doctor and we get our shots and I think we can all picture a needle full of some sort of fluid or something. Is that essentially what it's like for the fish? Yeah, um, so we've we've got a couple different variations that we're looking at. Um, one is more like a fluid or you know injectable um, goes in with a syringe. Yeah, go in, goes in with a needle and syringe. Um, we just recently completed a study looking at um, a hydrogel formulation, and a hydrogel is uh, a biopolymer that absorbs a lot of water, um, but maintains its shape and structure really well. So what our thoughts were with the hydrogel was that if we could implant this into the fish at a young age, you know, early on, it would um, last the entire duration of the fish's life span. So and, it would and... like slowly kind of... <laughs> uh, who's texting you? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want I turned it off sorry <laughs> um the hydrogel so it's more like a pellet that over time would release this antigen with the with the adjuvant so it's like a slow release of um immune response I right guess. right so the hydrogel um what it would allow us to do is to control the release rate of the antigen to the immune cells over a long period of time to to provide building uh, a more robust yeah. response right and then is... theoretically you'd only have to do this one time right yep gotcha um so i think the last time i read about this project there was not uh results yet i think it was very new um yeah. here you have some results <laughs> we do have some results so we performed a, a safety study where we implanted the hydrogel into the fish and then monitored the fish over 600 degree days, like Debbie said. Um, and what we found, um, there were some pros and some cons to it. Um, the pros were that um, the fish had no adverse reactions acutely. So um, they went back to eating and swimming and behaving as normally. Growing um, well. Growing well. Um, the cons were that uh, the hydrogel actually uh by the 600 degree day mark it had actually triggered a strong inflammatory response um, called the foreign body reaction which um it's this highly conserved immune response across many different species where um, when the body is exposed to a foreign um, material it actually like walls it off like a into a granuloma or like a cyst to sort of protect the body from it. So that's not ideal for our purposes. Um, and like it almost wants to like eject the yeah, hydrogel sort of right. It did. It was like, what is that? And it was like, it was like dimple pushing it back yeah, out. If you, if you imagine if you've ever gotten a splinter like implanted into your skin and then and then it just like gets inflamed and works the splinter back yeah. out. That's kind of what we, what we were seeing. Um, so really, we know a little bit about the foreign body reaction, and it's typically triggered um, from specific surface properties of the of the material. So we know that we can modify the surface of the material to avoid that. Um, Do you mean like um, 
I guess I don't know how like pellety this was, yeah. but do you mean change sort of like the viscosity of it? Like if it yeah, was more and it, and it is like gross. yeah, it was a rough rough surface, very porous, and um, some of the chemical uh, struct, some of the chemical components of the hydrogel um, likely um, interacted with the immune cells in a way that we didn't want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so always soliciting a, a, an immune response is a good thing. Sometimes mm-hmm. it just goes overboard. This went a little overboard. Um, and now, <laughs> one, it was great. Hey, we got an immune response. Two, it was like, oh, yeah. we got an immune response. Um, yeah. And so with that knowledge, though, and that's what research is about, we will reformulate what how what what's the next step that we're doing for reformulating so the next formulation we're looking at is called uh shear thinning and so what that is is um it's a liquid in the syringe it's injectable so uh, a lot less invasive than our implanting process which the implanting process might have um, played a role in that foreign body reaction um so uh, this will be injectable because of the pressure of pushing the nanocellulose through the needle and then also a slight pH change um, within the fish, that liquid will then um, form a sort of viscous gel inside the fish. So um, we hope to gain some of the advantages of the hydrogel without triggering that um, foreign body reaction to the stiff, rough um, material. But one of the unique things is it's sort of multidisciplinary. You've got biologists working with engineers, which uh, sometimes has its. Uh, we're we're speaking two different languages, languages. sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but we definitely have a strong industry support for this type of work, and we have commercial companies that we engage with that um, that are that are waiting for for the results for this. This is moving forward this might be with success an easily licensable um technology you better get going on it then <laughs> speed it up um this is a question i probably should have asked like 20 minutes ago but how do you inject a vaccine into a fish without it like flopping around all over the place does it is it it sounds kind of hard so what we do is um, we actually do a light anesthetic. Um, so the fish is very calm. Oh. <laughs> and um, uh, even in industry and commercial aquaculture settings, it really is individually injecting every single fish. So um, it, it is unfortunately a laborious pro- process. But again, um, because each fish is getting... A targeted dose it's a very effective process this was like no we did quite a bit of detail with uh, with the formulations and stuff so but you can edit thanks both of you I think this was really great and super informative about fish vaccines something that probably not a lot of people know much about <laughs>